Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Hassan Akmal. I'm the Executive Director of Industry Relations and Career Strategies at Columbia University's School of Professional Studies. I'm the host of the Behind the Scenes podcast series, which consists of a number of interviews with professionals discussing provocative career-related topics to set the stage for our students. The topic of today's podcast is career positioning. I'm here with Sim Siegel, the Academic Director of the Enterprise Risk Management Program and Senior Lecturer in Discipline at the School of Professional Studies. Sim is the president of Symergy Consulting, a firm specializing exclusively in enterprise risk management. Headquartered in Manhattan, Symergy provides ERM consulting services to companies in all sectors, primarily in the U.S. and Canada. Sim is the author of an ERM book published by Wiley entitled Corporate Value of Enterprise Risk Management has authored articles and publications such as Forbes and American Banker, and has been quoted in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Global Finance, and the National Underwriter. He is a frequently invited speaker to ERM conferences and events and has made over 170 ERM-related presentations globally. Sim, welcome. So let's start with, what is enterprise risk management? Oh, Hassan, you start with the easy questions first, huh? That's actually really hard because one of the troubling things about ERM is that it's so, if you ask so many different people, you get many different answers. And it's it's changing. It's evolving. Uh, it's a process, generally. The general description is it's a process that companies, organizations use to identify, measure, manage, and disclose risks to improve value to stakeholders. Unfortunately, a lot of people just use it for downside risk management, but really the way we do it here at Columbia, the advanced and practical way is to help an organization understand uh, what they would be worth if they achieved their strategic plan and to understand the upside and downside volatility to make better risk-reward decisions to execute their strategic plan, be more likely to achieve success. Great. Many career seekers find themselves in careers that they would never imagine themselves in. How did you find your way to your current role? Oh, great question. So I, I'm an actuary by profession. So that's the world's oldest risk profession. So naturally, that's sort of my, my mindset. I, my first half of my career was at MetLife. And as part of that role, I started to see things evolve. They were precursors to enterprise risk management, more capital management. And I saw the precursor to ERM evolving. And it looked to me like something that we all really want to do. It, it, we all want to make the biggest possible positive impact we can make on our environment, our organization, and our community. And that was more about understanding the risk-reward profile of different businesses and, and improving them. That evolved later into, into enterprise risk management. By that time, I was working at a large consulting firm. This is before I, I formed my own about eight years ago. And there was an opportunity to, hey, you know, ERM is coming around. Let's create a point of view on it. And I uh, volunteered and developed something that eventually uh, became the value-based enterprise risk management approach, which is where I think the world is heading and Columbia students are coming out ahead of that. Absolutely. Fantastic. So the program has been incredibly successful. Why so? Great question. I think there's a, a lot of reasons why, and it, it is extremely successful. We have by far the best academic uh, curriculum anywhere in the world. There's nobody's even close to what we're doing, and I'll, expl I'll explain why. We also have the incredible faculty that we, uh, that Columbia, of course, is able to draw. In SPS here, we have the scholar practitioner models, you know, which is that great balance that really uh, provides students with the best chance of success in the market. And the growth has been incredible. We have by far uh, the largest uh, program of its kind anywhere in the world. A couple of things. So one is that enterprise risk management is about a holistic process. And if you look at other programs, they're missing a lot of pieces. We have a truly holistic program where we cover all 
activities of enterprise risk management, not just risk governance and uh, framework and risk identification, but also risk quantification, the ability to quantify any type of risk, whether not just financial or operational, but strategic as well. That's something that is really rare and that, that is a tremendous need for that in the market. Uh, not like risk quantification, but also risk decision-making, not just mitigation, downside decisions, but integrating ERM into strategic planning and strategic and tactical decisions and transactions, routine business. Uh, and that's that risk-reward uh, understanding that, that people are looking for and risk disclosures on the back end, both uh, internal and external risk disclosures. So really the all of the ERM activities. In addition, we address all risks, as I alluded to before. If you don't, and if you look at most ERM programs, this is what they're missing. They're focusing almost all or all their quantitative efforts on uh, financial risk and a little bit of treatment on operational risk. Uh, all industry studies that I've ever seen, including two that I led and all my client work, show that even in the financial sector, the vast majority of risk come from strategic risk, second from operational, lastly from financial. So only focusing on a portion of the risks, I always say, is it's akin to uh, a rainstorm is coming, so you roll up the windows on your convertible, but you don't put the top up. You know, <laughs> we help you put the top up. You really have to protect yourself from all risk. And we also have uh, not some dusty theory. This is not what we do at SPS, right, in, at Columbia. What we do is we have a, an advanced but very practical approach that has been time-tested by our faculty who are either currently in the marketplace or have recently been there. Absolutely, and I used to drive a Jeep, so I definitely don't <laughs> want to. <laughs> I remember those days where I forgot forgot my top and it started <laughs> hailing on me. Oh boy! Um, so you know, to your point about a holistic approach, we also have a holistic approach when it comes to you know career development coaching at, at Columbia mm-hmm. University School of Professional Studies. So let's say you know, as you know, we meet with you know ERM students. Even I meet with some of the the students, and let's say we've already advised the student to polish their you know the resume. We've walked them through it. We've We've edited their critique, their cover letter. You know, they've polished their elevator pitch, and say they've, you know, they're staying up to date with the latest industry changes. What else? What can an ERM, you know, what what can ERM students prepare for? Mm-hmm. Um, how can they prepare for tomorrow? Really, really important question. And and a lot of the mentoring work that I do with our students, really important to get straight, is I first ask them. You know, focus. It's about focus because enterprise risk management is so broad. It can be applied to any industry. There's a, it can be applied at the corporate level, at the uh, business segment level, at the silo risk management level, at the retail financial planning level, at the government agency level, and at the country level. Wow. Uh, so I first ask them, where geographically do you want to work in the world? What sector do you want to work in? Uh, what type of role do you want? Do you want to work in the corporate ERM team? Do you want to support a CISO? Do you want to work in internal audit? Do you want to, you know, where do you want to work? Do you want to work in government, nonprofits? Do you want to work in retail financial planning? And we have students that are already in the market in wealth planning. So there's so many different ways. So once they have that focus, then we can say, okay, here's the specific, we have so much flexibility. It's another thing that uh, I didn't mention about the uniqueness of our program. We have a lot of customizable flexibility in our program so we can really help a student understand which courses they should be taking and what sequence. And, of course, we have an amazing network. Uh, thanks to you and our great faculty, uh, we will then try to connect them with people that can in- make introductions and, and help get them a little maybe an internship experience and focus. I think that really launches their career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's just so many facets to ERM, you know, as you mentioned. And I, I've, when I work with industry professionals and employers, they, they specifically ask me about my ERM students and they'll say, what part of ERM are they really passionate about? What, mm-hmm. which, which one of the <laughs> areas of risk? And, yeah. and, and, you know, it's important that students really understand that, which, you know, to be able to identify what area that they really excel in. Um, 
for example, you know, say somebody is interested in cybersecurity, for example. So, mm-hmm. um, so in, in you know, along those lines, right? Let's say they're at the point where they're actually having those meaningful conversations with employers. How important is networking with peers as well, um, or meeting new contacts? and really hearing from sort of esteemed industry leaders, um, say, at ERM conferences? Mm-hmm. No, great question. I, I, there's a lot for students to think differently about this because I think a lot of them come in with a, with a certain mindset. And what we try to do is get people to see networking a little differently. So networking to some people is, I need a job. How can you help me get a job? And try to force their card on somebody at, at, a, at a conference. That's not going to work, and that's not what, what it really is. Networking is a long investment in people. And not only does it feel good to help others, but it also that's what might pay dividends in the long run. So I tell people, you never know who uh, might be able to help you in the future, but just try to focus on meeting people, learning first about them and their needs and their goals and their interests, and then finding a way to be, be helpful. You know, here's an article you might be interested in, or here's somebody I can introduce you to. And if you serve others, it's sort of like that seven habits of highly effective people, you first seek to understand, then to be understood. So if you do that over time and show the commitment that you care about people, then when you do need something down the road, maybe some of them will be in a position to be available to, to help you too. So with that mindset, it shouldn't matter whether someone's a peer or high. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of uh, excluding people that you think right away cannot help you. And I also wouldn't f- stop reaching really, really high. Sometimes people at the top don't get approached by people saying, hey, can you mentor me? Uh, CEO, you know, or, or CRO from a large firm. It, they don't get a lot of those, believe it or not. So I think those that do reach out could be very, uh, very successful that way. I really like the way that you frame that is for a long-term investment, because I think a, a lot of students, when they look at mentorship, for example, they look at what can I get out of this? And they forget that it is an investment and it should be a two-way, two-way street, essentially. And you know, I, I know students are always looking for somebody in their field, um, but some of the best mentors come from people who are in different industries and different companies. Um, in fact, you may not want to go to a senior vice president or, or a CEO to have them edit your resume because they may have not looked at a resume for 20 years. Right. So I really think that that's an important point that you make. Let's say we're talking to a student and um, we're talking to them about aligning a mentor, the whole process. You know, we have mentors, we have enablers, we have promoters, we have points of reference, what advice do you have? Like, where should they look? You know, I know we have the hub, right? Powered by People Grove. It's a great place to start. But what about aligning multiple mentors or others? What, what do you suggest? Yeah, it's a good question. A, a lot of uh, organizations try to set up networking, formal networking programs. I've never seen one of them work. The reason why is because it needs to happen naturally. So through the hub, we provide opportunities. And I would recommend to students that they try to establish a connection. It has to be a personal thing. So if there's, if there's an interest, if there's a click, uh, then you know, maybe pursue it. But f- get a feel for it. If there's not a good match between people, and that maybe it's not going to pay the, the most dividends. It's really getting people to take an interest in you, and they have to have the time and availability, and the interests have to align. The opportunities to introduce you to others have to be there. But it's also very personal. So keep looking around and find someone that you maybe want to work with, but don't push it. If it doesn't seem to be a good relationship there right away, uh, follow those more that have sparks to them, and then I think those will be the good ways to go. So, Sam, you hit, you hit on a really important point. So every year I follow um, a conference called Global Leaders, um, the Global Leadership Summit, and uh, they, you know, they host it in, in Oxford. They, ha- they held it uh, last year at UCLA, uh, one of my alma maters, and what they talk about is how mentorship programs have essentially evolved. In the past, we used to align students 
Um, it was not a self-selection process. It was a spreadsheet, and you would literally pair students up based on their major. That didn't work, right? And number one, it wasn't scalable, sustainable. Uh, it was a full-time job for a lot of people, um, and I know this because I ran It's like an the, arranged marriage. Ex- exactly. And, and there's actually a, an article um, that, um, that talks about mentorship in that context mm-hmm. and says, you know, the end of arranged marriages when it comes to mm-hmm. mentorship. So uh, I had run the mentorship program at, in my former institution, and, you know, it was actually a very fun uh, thing to do because there were so many different perspectives on it, right? You could do reverse mentorship uh, at a graduate level. You could have companies that select the students. Um, but essentially what we found out is that, and, and what they talk about at this conference, is that mentorship programs have evolved, and now it's about shared interests and shared affiliations. Um, so to your point about, you know, like-minded individuals uh, getting together. There's one more point if I, if I could add because it just reminded me of a conversation I had last week with one of our top students. I was doing some mentoring, and, and we set up like a, a series of meetings and lunches, and uh, he said, you know, I could tell by the way uh, he and his colleague, uh, she was approaching this, and I said, you know, you need to think about this as a two-way street. So they're so thankful that I'm mentoring them, and I explained to them, you're giving me something too. You shouldn't forget that. And I tell this story. I don't know if you've ever seen the television show The Facts of Life. Oh, of course. <laughs> okay. Do you remember there was a, t- a character that was like the rough character, Joe? She rode a motorcycle or something. She didn't really have a lot of money. And then there was a snobbish kind of rich girl. They were like frenemies. At the end of the show, <laughs> the uh, the rich girl, she knew that Joe couldn't go to college. So she arranged clandestinely to have her father arrange or like a secret uh, thing so, so she can get funds to go to college. And of course, half, halfway through the show, Joe finds out that it was her, you know, this, her friend's father, and she refused to take it. And she met with her, and she said, why? She goes, I don't need charity. She goes, this isn't charity. She goes, this is friendship. She goes, I do something for you. She says, yeah, yeah, I know. And then I have to do something for you. She says, no, that's not what friendship is. Friendship is I do something for you, and you let me. Exactly. And it's a real touching thing. And the way to think about it is people are good. They like to help people. And not many mentors, especially higher-level people, when they get that opportunity up in companies, that's why I encourage people to reach out, they, they get a lot of joy out of helping somebody that they know, you know from Columbia. They're going to go somewhere. And pay dividends on that help. And, and I find, for me, my portfolio, my investment portfolio, are those few opportunities where I have an opportunity to help people, other people, along with their path. That's precious assets it's to me. And I think other people the same way. And I think they should look at it. They're giving something, too. They should not be hesitant or afraid to reach out. Exactly. I mean, I was speaking to an executive student the other day, and, and they said, you know, what's different you know, at my level than, you know, what are you coaching? And I said, at your level, you should be on a board. You should be giving back. And, you know, doing well by doing good. And it reminds me when I, I used to be a chief executive officer for a global nonprofit for forced migration and health. And I was, you know, I was an athlete ambassador um, for the United States at the time. And I was uh, asked for an autograph by this ch- child with Down syndrome and said to me, you know, please sign this for me. And I said, you know what, give me your autograph. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, thank you so much for coming and working with the refugees. I said, no, no, thank you. Because you know what they did? They changed my entire view on the world, right? Wonderful. And really is a gift. And so I, I like how you say that. It's really, I mean, it's, it's, such, it's so important for people to understand um, that, that it's a gift for them as well. And you're, they're really benefiting from, from the relationship too. And Absolutely. I think that that's really important, especially as, to your point about long-term uh, mentorship and relationships. So in an article by the Harvard Business Review, I think it was called Managing Risks, uh, a New Framework. The authors state, risk management is painful, not a natural act for humans to perform. Why is risk so hard to talk about? That's a good 
question, uh, way to look at it. I, I think the reason is because the way risk management, and enterprise risk management is different from risk management. It's only a word away, but it's also a world away. But both often share the same problem, is that they had traditionally focused more on the downside volatility. And that's, again, not what, you know, we teach what, what is going on all around the world, and that is mostly what happens. But the advanced ERM, which is what we teach here, is how to look at risk agnostically. The volatility both up and down versus your strategic goals is included because you need that for lots of reasons, one of, main one of which is that that's the only way you can inform both sides of the risk-reward equation. Risk-reward is the most common phrase in business. That is engaging. When you talk to people about, well, just make sure the one in a million thing doesn't happen. Okay, they roll their eyes. And mm-hmm. most executives are like, well, I'm not going to be around if that happens anyway. Why should I focus on it? It's not day to day. But when you talk about people uh, to, to people about what are your goals for, the, for your company, for your business segment, and you personally career-wise, and let's figure out a way that you can increase the chances of success and decrease the chances of dropping, missing your goal by 5% or 10% or more. Now they're interested. And that's more natural to people because that's what we have to do. We have to deal with both sides of that equation. It's not just the downside. So traditionally, strategic planning people have been this hockey stick projection of everything's been bad in the past, but we're going to grow phenomenally well. And they only show, look at the upside. And that's only half the equation. They've been ignoring the risk people. The risk people have traditionally been saying, well, all the, here's all the downside, but they've been ignoring the upside too. ERM, Enterprise Risk Management, brings it together. Uh, you know, again, again, the value-based approach, which is what we, you know, the leading method we teach here at Columbia, that's where people want to get. That's exciting. And I think that goes back to your sort of framework and the way you frame it as, you know, holistic. And so people forget about overperforming, right, the upside. And, I, and it reminds me of, of my professional tennis days, right, because, you know, we also manage our risk on the court, right? And, you know, what's a greater probability of going cross-court versus down the line? And in the amount of effort. So, you know, somebody like Pete Sampras or Roger Federer, right, exert very little effort, maintain themselves. It's it's sort of more sustainable. And you have people like Thomas Muster on Andre Agassi who hit the ball as hard as they can and higher risk. And, and, and if you see kind of the their um, their leadership and their ranking and how long they sustain those the, the, the high ranking, some of some of those players that, that actually exerted less effort, mm-hmm. but mean, you know, and, but it was more more efficient uh, performed better in the long run and, and kind of have more of the grand slams under the belt. Yeah. So, so yeah, I like, how, I like how you talk about the, the upside. I think that's very important. Uh, Grant Thornton states, for those organizations that choose to weather this economic storm with the aid of ERM, the benefits of their efforts today will likely remain long thereafter. So what does this quote mean to you? Well, the first thing it actually brings to mind is that years ago when Aaron was, was a little newer, uh, people would ask the question, well, can you prove that this adds value? Uh, it's certainly intuitive, right, if you're doing it the right way. A lot of the resistance was correct because a lot of people were doing it only downside management only, and that's, that's not the way to increase value. But when you look at it in terms of increasing the rigor of your strategic planning process, understanding the risk reward profile, it's so natural. But people still in the beginning were like, prove, prove it, you know, and okay. So when innovations decades ago, you know, in terms of introducing, you know, basic stuff now, like strategic planning process, prove it works. You know, it's so obvious. We can't create a parallel universe and, and create tests, but some things are just intuitive. But Standard & Poor's uh, in the insurance sector had added an eighth distinct grade uh, for companies, a component of the ratings on, stand, on enterprise risk management. And they didn't set it up exactly the way I might do it, but they had some rubric, some way of, of judging. These are, here's, here's the excellent, strong, uh, you know, a- adequate, and, and, and poor. And they did a study. So they did this before the financial crisis, and they did an analysis uh, looking at, through the financial crisis how these companies performed. Now, it's, it's 
they found a correlation. It's not necessarily causal. We don't know. But it's some anecdotal evidence for it. And they found that the companies that generally had better enterprise risk management didn't fall as far down as their peers through the crisis, recovered more quickly, and had less overall uh, earnings volatility. That's very interesting. And you know, it reminds me also of, um, of my graduate school days and when I was an athlete ambassador, like I mentioned earlier, for, for about five years, one of my co-ambassadors was, in fact, Wayne Gretzky. And awesome. <laughs> and he was known, you know. The great uh, one. Is that what the, the great one? Yeah, exactly. He was known um, for saying, you know, you'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And, and you know, that sort of quote really, really mm-hmm. resonated with mm-hmm. me um, back when we did the trainings. So talk to me about about that. Like, so talk to me about taking risks. How important is it for an ERM student to take risks in terms of their career? Mm. And, and what kinds? You know, it, it was it also Gretzky that said, I, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going to be. <laughs> yeah, Did he say so. that? Yeah. I think so. So I, I think that's also an ERM is it's, it's about looking forward and seeing what's coming down the pike. In terms of the career, so that's a good, good question. You know, I, I guess I never saw myself uh, as a risk taker. I always saw myself as being someone that was, you know, was careful, right? But I, sp- I assume starting my own, uh, you know, business in the middle of a financial crisis. Uh, of course, times were pretty good for ERM then as well. But uh, you know, and walking away from, you know, a good situation—that—that's—that's that's a risk, and and it does take risk to get the extra reward. Generally, that's those things go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the flip side is sometimes if you play it safe, it's the most you've heard the saying. It's the most dangerous thing you can do because you're guaranteed to limit the upside, right? Uh, so it depends what you want. And I would say that people should follow their passion. Some people are just, they're, they're meant to start their own firm. And a lot of our students say one day they want to start their own consulting firm in risk or ERM. And that's great. And, and some people have a burning desire. They've always had that burning desire to be on their own and do that. Uh, those are the people that eventually do it. If other people are like, well, you know, I could work for this or I could do that. You know, you got to find where your passion is. When you follow your passion, you're going to excel. And you'll be fine whatever you do. Uh, but it, it's just something to keep in mind is that to reach your goals, sometimes you have to do something a little risky, but you have to see if you're comfortable with it in your gut. So on paper, I think sometimes people try to plan out what they want to do. And at the end of all the thinking, I recommend people put it all away and listen to their instincts. Our instincts know so much more and encompass so much more information than we can rationally explain. But it's really important to trust your gut on whether is this employer the one for you? Is there something about the culture that just your instinct is telling you is not the best fit for you? Even if it looks great on paper for your career, listen to your instinct and try to find something that's a better fit. Absolutely. You know, and late Steve Jobs talks a lot about trusting the gut and and your intuition and uh, plotting the dots moving mm-hmm. forward, but you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And I think that's mm-hmm. important when it comes to finding inspiring work. Great quote. I also love how you say that it's limiting on the upside because what we're talking to students today about, especially in some of our design thinking um, career coaching, is we're talking about limiting beliefs. And, and those are notions that some students may not even understand that they have um, consciously, right? For example, uh, growing up for me, it was you're going to go to medical school. <laughs> in fact, I got into medical school, but you know, I decided to play pro tennis and take a different route. Um, so those limiting beliefs are preventing people from looking at the upside of their career or taking those entrepreneurial opportunities and really kind of exploring in, uh, that passion. So I, I think that's very interesting that you say that. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Our next podcast will be on the topic of data literacy by Marianne Saylor, who is part of our faculty in applied analytics.